Turn over to the book of Philippians this morning. Just beginning this book. Just started it last week, actually. and We looked at some uh, aspects of, of joy. <clears throat> and we talked a little bit about joy versus happiness. And we uh, said that, that happiness is an attitude, but joy is more of a confidence. Um, happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is based on facts. Happiness is beyond our control where joy is within our control. Happiness is from positive experiences, happenstances in our lives, and joy comes from a true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We also said that happiness is temporary, but joy is lasting. And uh, I think it's important to keep our mindset in that direction <clears throat> because this world has a message that just be happy. And uh, scriptures tell us something else, that we should have a joy, and that joy needs to come from the Lord. We, we talked a little bit about that um, last week. We said that joy is a gift from God, that God grants to believers of the gospel, and it's produced by the Holy Spirit that resides within those believers, and they experience it when they obey God's Word. Even though they're faced with various trials throughout that time, eventually we're made complete <clears throat> through that hope of glory in heaven. And I think this morning as we begin to look at the actual text of Philippians chapter 1, it's a marvelous little letter. And I, I encourage you to read ahead of us and read through the book several times because every time you read through it, you'll pick up something different. And so when we get to and begin to work through the text of Scripture, you'll be familiar with it and uh, you'll get a lot more out of the study uh, than you would otherwise. But you notice the first thing here that, that Paul um, does, he's obviously writing to the um, Philippians and he loves the Philippians greatly because uh, he was... Um, close to them. It was probably one of the closest bonds they had with any church at all. There was something there, something very special and deep about the relationship. Um, and I think that this time he was a, a prisoner. He mentions his imprisonment uh, several times in chapter 1. And he's writing to them, remember, because he's concerned about their sorrow. Have you ever been in a situation where you go to kind of maybe cheer somebody up or you go to you know, minister to somebody and you come away ministered to and you just walk away scratching your head going, what's up with this, God? You know, we used to do this when we, we used to go down to Mexico with young people every year over spring break. And we go down there with some big agenda, you know, we're going to you know, minister to these people. And we walk away more blessed than we could ever even imagine. I mean, I had teenagers on Friday when we were leaving crying because they had to go back to America. And it was just something about going down there and, and seeing people who have a joy, who have a contentment, and yet they live in such poverty. Or you go to a hospital bed to encourage somebody, and you walk away just blown away by their faith. That happens a lot. Well, Paul is writing the Philippians to actually encourage them because they were concerned about him. They were concerned about his imprisonment. And he loves them so much that he, he's willing to take time and to really write to them about the concerns 
that He has for them. He was concerned about their unity. He was concerned about their faithfulness. He was concerned about a lot of things that come out in this letter. But more than that, He was concerned because they were concerned because He was a prisoner. He wanted to make sure that they understood that this was okay. The suffering that He was going through was from the hand of God. And He writes to them in effect and He says, look, you know, I rejoice in this situation, even though I'm in prison, even though I'm locked away and, and you know, God has been gracious to me and I'm rejoicing in this, so don't you do any less. And it's really intended to convey the joy of the author, the, the joy of Paul himself. And so it's, it's kind of a uh, an upbeat letter. It's not a lot of there's some theology in it, obviously, but it's, it's a very encouraging letter. And today I just want to look at a couple different aspects of this letter. And, um, you know, you look at the very beginning, and he says, Paul and Timothy, the bondservants of Jesus Christ. He starts with Paul and Timothy, the bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul usually starts off his letters this way. We've gone over this before, so we're not going to go into depth about this. But we know, we should all know Paul, who he was. We should all know Timothy and understand who he was. And we probably all understand what a bondservant of Jesus Christ is. But just in case we've forgotten or we want to review a little bit, we want to remember this apostle, Paul, incredible. Paul the Apostle, what, a, what an incredible individual that was used by God. He was converted, as you remember, on the road to Damascus. He was out persecuting Christians, and God touched his heart and totally transformed his life. And it was that, that remarkable man that God's Spirit was able to write 13 of these epistles through him. Just incredible if you stop and you think about it. He's probably, you know, just really in touch with what God wanted him to do after he transformed his life and saved him. But if you look over at chapter 3, we're probably going to see a little bit about Paul, and it's probably the most concise place that we can look without jumping around the Scriptures a whole lot. Look at Philippians chapter 3, and I want to, uh, jump down to verse 4. Philippians 3, verse 4. And this is Paul, and he says, Though also I might have the confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And then he begins to kind to explain to us a little bit about who he was. He's giving his credentials. He's saying, just in case uh, you've forgotten, I was circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel. And that was the prescribed pattern for a Jewish individual, for a Jewish boy. That's exactly how it was supposed to happen. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, among my peers, he's kind of saying, I was esteemed as the epitome of what a Hebrew was to be and who he was. And then he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. What he's saying is, 
he was he was very he, he understood what the law was all about. Unfortunately, he didn't have the spiritual input yet, but he was a Pharisee. He he totally lived according to that. Strived to. He jumped through all the hoops of his belief system in Judaism. Circumcised the eighth day. He belonged to the nation of Israel. Hebrew of the Hebrews. As far as the law goes, he even goes down further. And he says, concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. There was nobody that was more zealous than me. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. His own peers, not God, found him blameless. That's important. Sometimes we look at other people and we say, wow, they're so perfect. They do everything. Well, God sees their heart. But his peers obviously put him up on a pedestal. They found him blameless. And then you look down a little further in verse 7, and you find this man who lived according to the law, a man of most likely incredible integrity as far as his religion was concerned, in his own little system. But in verse 7, look at what he says. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, you know what? I was doing all this stuff. I was in the performance mode before a holy God. And then he touched my heart and he showed me my own sinfulness. And I began to realize it's by his grace that his his faith was extended to him. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul was an individual who was concerned about his walk even before he was a Christian. He was a Jew. He was a zealous Jew. He was, you can even say, a legalistic Jew. He was one of the Pharisees. He kept the law as well as probably any man could keep the law. He was found blameless among his peers. And you know what? He looked at all that and said, trash. That doesn't mean squat in front of a holy God. He trashed all those human credentials and it says that he counted them as rubbish. Have you ever been to a garbage dump? I remember when we were little, we in Torresville, Pennsylvania, we used to have the county little garbage dump in our town. And we used to be able to ride down there with my brother or whoever that was taking dump stuff from the house. Usually we just kind of threw it up on the mountain behind our house. But I don't know what, some of the stuff we had to take down to the dump and uh, that was back in the days when you could burn trash in your backyard. You know, it's no big deal. And I remember riding down to the dump, and uh, the first time I can remember going there, we had this guy that was like the gatekeeper of the dump. And I just remember he had this huge nose. I mean, I don't know if he had a disease or what, but it, 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 it kind of looked like a drunk 
you know, how a drunk has a nose. But it was just huge, this huge nose, like a Jimmy Granny kind of a character kind of guy. And I remember going up there and him just, you know, kind of trying to talk to me, and I was kind of scared. And uh, I remember getting in the dump, and I remember the smell just stunk. But there was this one section, we had a Sylvania bulb plant in our town. And that was back when they made the little flash tubes for the uh, cameras. And uh, Sylvania would actually dump their, I guess, excess bulbs there in this dump. And so, you know, the second, third time we'd gone down there, my brother taught me that you need to go over to while they're emptying the truck and stuff, you can go over here and find this, this big glistening mound of, of bluish silver uh, bulbs. And you take rocks and you stand there and you throw them. That's these things. They, they blow up. It was like fluorescent bulbs. Kind of, it was just the funnest thing. I mean, can we go to the dump, you know? And, you know, but it stunk there. It just stunk. And, and I remember the first time going, oh, man, it stinks. But after I got kind of, you know, kind of distracted and I'm playing with these bulbs and breaking them with, with rocks and stuff, I didn't smell it anymore. And, you know, I began to think sometimes that's, that's how it is in the world. Sometimes we get, you know, God pulls us out of that. He saves us from that. And sometimes we end up back there in that garbage heap. And at first we're going, oh, this reeks. But if we linger there, what happens? We grow a little comfortable. That's kind of like men down at the retreat. You know, we first got there. Oh, the ocean air smells so good. You know, Ken and I got there a little bit early. And then we're standing out on the beach hours later. And somebody says, hey, is that a log down there? I said, or is that a seal down there? A dead seal? I said, no, that's a log. It looks like a log. And so I walked down there, you know, and I'm kind of walking over to it. And, whoa, it was. It was a dead seal. And it obviously had been dead for a while. You know, it, was just, it looked like a petrified log. But it stunk. And at first when we got there, it was like, oh, it smells so good. And after a while, I was like, oh, man. You know. And the guy next door went down there with a shovel and tried to cover it up one day with sand. And the, the water came. And the next day, it was just as stinky. But after a while, you kind of grow accustomed to it. But the same way with the world. And, and I think Paul is what he's looking at. Is, look, I, I was in this. I had all these, these credentials. And what he says is, you know what? He just throws them on the garbage heap. He says, I, I'm not even concerned about that anymore. I'm going to give all that away because I'm willing to, because I want to know my Lord and my Savior. And maybe some of you here this morning had a very successful life and you came to a point where you had to make a decision for Christ. And maybe, you know, your success even could hinge on that decision depending on what it was built on. And all of us have those decisions to make in life. But Paul, thankfully, made the right decision. God called him. God touched his heart, transformed him into a man of God that, that, that wrote most of the New Testament. And so, on the basis of faith, God saved Paul out of all that. And he spent the rest of his life proclaiming what God had done in his life. And that's what we're called to do. Well, who's the second character here? Timothy. What about him? Timothy was basically Paul's son in the faith. You know, I don't want to skip over that little word, and, because I think it's so important. You know, no man is an island unto himself. Amen? I mean, we all need a team around us. We all need people to come and support us in some fashion, whether it's family or ministry or job-related. And Paul understood that. And so, 
he had this son in the faith, Timothy. We're introduced to him in Acts, basically chapter 16, when Paul visited Derby and Lystra in the area around Galatia. And he found this young man. He took him kind of as his, his disciple, you might say. He trained him. He taught him. And he became a real son to, to Paul. They had a real neat relationship. He was a dear companion. I don't think that Paul and Timothy both wrote, both wrote this epistle. That's not what he's saying. Paul wrote the epistle, and Timothy was there beside him. Sometimes Paul needed someone to assist him in writing. But it's not a dual authorship kind of a thing going on here. Paul wrote this, this epistle. But he had beside, his, beside him Timothy. And uh, we learn a lot about Timothy in First and Second Timothy. Um, but I think that the one, the one thing that, that he, he really, in the, the one epistle, Paul is kind of uh, uh, introducing Timothy to us. And it's in, uh, I think it's Second Timothy, chapter 2. Look at verse verse one. He's kind of he's kind of encouraging Timothy in the fact he said, "You therefore, my son, he's talking spiritually, obviously, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these things to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in the war- warfare entangles himself." with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first, uh, must first, must be first to partake of the cross. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. He looked at, at Timothy as his son. He was concerned with him and for him. Turn back to Philippians 2 and look at verse 19 because he kind of gives us a little bit of background on on Timothy here in verse 19 of chapter 2. He says, But I trust in the Lord, and he's talking to the Philippians, to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. And then he says this in verse 20, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. See, it kind of gives us two sides of the coin. You see the concern that Paul had for the Philippian believers. He wasn't just going to send anyone over there. He wanted somebody that could really help them, to really come alongside them and encourage them. And on the other side, it shows the like-mindedness of Timothy, the willingness to go, his sincerity in his faith. And he says in verse 21, For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Now that's the way it is a lot of times. Even in Christianity. 
You have people out there masquerading as pastors and teachers and preachers and evangelists and all sorts of things, but you know what they're concerned with? They're concerned with their own. They're concerned with lining their pockets with the sheep's funds to carry out their own little agenda. And we have to be careful. But in verse 22 he says, But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself may come shortly. And so here we find Paul's helper, Timothy, comes alongside him and is willing to serve with him in this, in this way. And Timothy was well known to the Philippians. He was beloved by the Philippians. And Paul was going to send him uh, so that they could receive the best reception, the best teaching that they could possibly get. And possibly, Paul was even one of the secretaries who, who helped Paul uh, write these letters. He would dictate, and, and maybe Timothy would write them down because Paul had some kind of problem with his, some believe his eyes that he couldn't see correctly. Um, and so here you have the team of Paul and Timothy. And then look at the next, the next uh, uh, word there, and thank you, and bond servants of Jesus Christ. The bond servants of Jesus Christ. He, he wanted to go and uh, just kind of call Timothy alongside of him and serve in this way. And you notice he includes them both in that. They're both bond servants of Jesus Christ. You know, we wonder sometimes when you hear the word servant or slave in the Scriptures, uh, a lot of the writers of Scripture love to call themselves uh, bond slaves or bond servants of Christ Jesus. And it kind of gives off the idea that word slave or, or servant is the idea of ownership. It has the idea of allegiance, a dependence upon, a subjection to, a loyalty to somebody. And obviously, it's, it's Christ. Now, the one thing that we see there is that we think in our mind a bond servant is someone who's forced to do something. We're sadly mistaken. It's somebody who does it willingly. They, they enjoy it. They, they can't wait to serve the Lord in, in the way that He's called them. It's a willing service. It's not a, a service under, you know, some kind of a, uh, you know, you better do this or else. Um, it, it's, it's these people serving the Lord, Paul and Timothy, out of the love they have for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the other aspect of their, their service here, is that it's Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, not of First Church or what's happening now or First Church of Jerusalem or whatever. They're, they're Paul and Timothy, bond servants of who? Jesus Christ. You know, and that's what we're called to serve. When we're called to serve, we don't serve, you know, I mean, in our minds we think, well, we're serving the church. You know, we're serving these people. We're serving this. No, you know what? We're called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. What venue that plays out in, that's up to Him. I mean, if, if, if God moved you to a different town with a different church, would you just say, well, if I can't serve a great Bible church, so well, I guess I'm not going to serve at all. No, you would say, well, you'd go to that church and say, how can I serve you? How can I get plugged into ministry? But it's not a, a forced behavior. 
it has the idea of a willingness. Um, and these bondservants of Jesus Christ were always the, the focus. That's how they always described themselves. And his service was always to Christ. It wasn't to a group of people. He doesn't say, oh, I'm bondservants of the Philippians or I'm bondservants of the Colossians. No, he says, Paul and Timothy were bondservants of Jesus Christ. Do you ever think why God saved you? Do you ever stop and think, you know, it's for His glory, obviously, that He saves us. And we, we reap the benefit from that. But, you know, there's a reason why God saves you and leaves you here on earth. I mean, if it was up to me and I did it my way, if I was God, I would probably save people and just have them kind of zip right up to heaven. You know, don't mess things up down there. You know, sometimes we mess things up more than we're willing to admit, I think. You know, we get in the way of God's plan and everything. And I just got to just, you know, you get saved, you just put on rocket shoes, and boom, you're in heaven, you know. Um, you don't have to deal with this earth anymore. That would be a, that'd be a good deal. But now God says, you know what, I'm going to save you, and then you're going to have to live down here on this sinful, you know, decrepit earth until I call you home. But I don't want you just sitting around twiddling your thumbs or studying your navel or doing anything else. I want you serving me. And I want you to look for opportunities to tell others how I've changed your life. That transformation that took place in Paul's life, he just didn't sit around and go, oh, okay, you know, this is great, I'm saved now. No, he, he had it in his heart as a purpose to say, you know what, I want to reach this lost and dying world with the gospel of Christ. That's what we're called to do. And, you know, that's one thing that, that I think, uh, talking about mothers, one of the responsibilities of a mother, in a way, as well as a father, but a mother, primary caretaker usually, to disciple those children. Not just to make them do the right thing under compliance, but disciple them so they know why they're doing the right thing. And a godly mother would want to model for their children Christ and serve their family in that way. And so we, we see here that you have this team of Paul and Timothy and they describe themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ. And then he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Now, what about these saints? Who are these people? Um, it says there to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Well, it obviously includes church leaders, the spiritual guiding force, and the group serving the church there. But he says, he's writing, you know, that, see that there, to the saints. And I think a lot of times, our culture fogs up this idea, what is a saint? What, what does it mean? Some people think of a saint as some statue you go and you pray to in some churches. You know, you, you think of somebody who gets their image made into a statue. Oh, they've obtained sainthood. One little boy said, Someone asked him, what's, what's a saint? And he said, they're dead people that you put up on the church wall to keep the light 
from coming through. That's truer than we quite think, I think. But all those things represent a sort of culture of what they think a, a saint is today. We talk about, you know, even churches in our area, St. Pius, St. this, St. that, whatever it is. Um, they probably don't even realize that they got a group of saints meeting right here this morning. The word saint basically is a designation that's used throughout Scripture of all those who have new life in Christ. All Christians are saints. So afterwards today, we can start calling each other Saint Ken. St. Bob, St. John. That's what we are. We're saints. John MacArthur tells the story of his grandfather, and he says there's two kinds of people in the world today, the saints and the ain'ts. And that's true. Either you're a saint or you're not. Either you're a believer or you're not. There's no gray area there. Now, the word itself means separated. It means unique. It means different. It means set apart. You could translate that word holy. It doesn't speak of dead martyrs, canonized people, or super pious people, or anything like that. It's talking about all believers. That's what Paul is writing to. And it's even interesting, more interesting than that, sometimes we think, well... You know, sainthood must you know, depend on our performance before God. Well, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, it was written to the saints at that church. You know what? If you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul's calling them saints, there's a little bit of latitude there in the use of this word. It's not a performance-oriented word. It's like either you're in Christ or you're not. If you're in Christ, then you're considered a saint. It doesn't matter if you do all the right things all the time. Obviously, we should live in obedience to God's Word and things like that. But sometimes, you know what? We fail. We fall. We're imperfect people in an imperfect world that's filled with sin. And that's why the grace of God is there. But that doesn't affect our sainthood as far as God's concerned. How do you define a saint? The saints in Christ Jesus. We're holy people. We're made holy by Christ's salvation. We're not holy in and of ourselves. We've been made righteous. We have been declared righteous in God's eyes. We have been given a, a life that's from God. We're made unique. We're made separate. We're different from the rest of the world. And you say, well, that sounds kind of harsh. Well, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is a message that when you give it out, either people are going to accept it or they're going to reject it. Either God's going to transform them or He's not. But for those who have been transformed in Christ, we're considered saints. We have, we have every right to be identified as saints as well. We are saints in Christ Jesus. You know, you never hear somebody who's a Buddhist say that I'm in Buddhahood. 
They never say that. They never designate themselves as being in Buddha. For those who Muslim, I'm in Muhammad. Or if they're in the Christian science realm, I'm in Mary Baker, Baker Eddy. They don't say that. Or if you're a Mormon, you don't say, I'm in Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. It's only the Christian faith that says, you know what? We're in Christ. Christ saved us. He brought us in and made us a part of Himself. He put us in His family. He adopted us. Our life is in Him. You know, the verse that says, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, and yet Christ lives in me. That's what it's all about as a believer. We're all tied together because of our common belief of who Jesus Christ is and what He's done to us. He saved us. So he writes to all believers here who are in Christ and he legitimately calls them saints. And he says, I want to write to those who are here, especially in Philippi. That's where they lived. It's a city with some distinction. At the time of the Phoenicians, they had tremendous apparently gold mines and silver mines going on in this area. And, and, and what happened was people rushed into that area before there was ever even a city there to mine out all this ore that was there. And due to the tremendous discovery of all the precious metals, the place became a commercial center of the ancient world. It was a great trade center. And its location is, is strategic. You look on your Bible map in the back of your Bible, it's right at the top of the Aegean Sea. And it's just kind of a, uh, just a very strategic place. And any road that would go from east to west had to go through the top of the Aegean Sea there across the Adriatic Sea. And it's, it's right there. It's, it's right there in the, the middle of all that that thing, God strategically placed it there. It was a Roman colony. And uh, obviously they needed the Lord. Um, they also enjoyed, they had the, the, the aspect of, uh, it was a tax-free area because of their, their whole situation. Um, they were free from taxation from the Roman government. Um, and they were considered Roman citizens as well. So they had all the rights of anyone who lived in Rome. And I think that it's, it's kind of important just to give you that little bit of background. And then he goes on there. He says, with the bishops and the deacons. Wish the, with the bishops and the deacons. Well, who is that? What is that about, the bishops and the deacons? Basically, it's the idea of overseers within the church itself. He's saying, not only am I writing to the saints, but I'm also writing to the bishops and the deacons, those who serve the church, those who are leading spiritually in the church. And he wants them to know that, that they're included in this. 
And then in verse 2, we have what is called the salutation. And that's what, what Paul always kind of, uh, very common to his letters. And you stop and you read that. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his standard greeting. Now, you know what? There's a lot of people in our world today who are looking for peace. Would you agree with that? you got, you know, people looking for peace all over the place. Um, sometimes we just want to get away and reflect a little bit. And, you know, part of that is, hey, we just, we just want, want some peace. We just want to, want to relax a little bit. Um, but if you look at the order here in which Paul has placed these words, it's, it's, it's rather important. Because he says, grace to you and what? Peace. One thing we have to understand in our, in our world is that we're never going to experience the peace of God until first we experience the grace of God. Amen? It's always the grace of God. It has to touch somebody's heart. You know, you can talk to somebody till they're blue in the face. You can counsel somebody till they're blue in the face and talk to them about all these problems and everything they have. But you know what? Until they're willing to bend their knee and come before the whole, before God and, and admit their own sinfulness and His holiness and say, you know what? I can't come to you any other way except by grace. They're not going to experience peace. They're not going to experience joy. And so many times... Especially even within the church, we find people that are dealing with major issues, and what do we do? We, we steer them to a counselor. We steer them to this. Steer them to a program. Put them, you know, do them this. Just all these different things. And sometimes it's just a matter of saying, you know what? Let's just, let's just pray for that. Pray for their salvation. That's the number one thing that somebody needs. Once they have their salvation in place, once God has granted that to them and they're saved, then what? They have everything in Christ to deal with all the issues they have. See, so many times we want to attack the issues before we make sure they're in Christ. And Paul always says, hey, you know what? Grace to you first, and then peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the only way we're going to get it. It's through that avenue. There's not, you know, there's not many doors that lead to heaven. We've been taught that. Our society teaches that. I was listening to Michael Savage last week on the radio. And he had uh, Jerry Falwell on there. I thought, this should be interesting. And so he, you know, thanked Jerry Falwell for coming on his program and la, la, la. And then he said, well, you know, basically, I don't forget what they were talking about, but somehow it got to the, the, the aspect of, of uh how, what's the Christian belief as far as heaven and, and Jesus Christ? And Jerry, Jerry Falwell is saying, well, the Bible very clearly says that there's only one way to heaven and kind of spelled it out. You know, it's through the Lord Jesus Christ and that's the only way we can have our sins forgiven. And Michael Savage was just taken back. Hey, are you saying that, you know, all the Jews, all the Muslims, all the people, nobody that, you know, unless they admit who Jesus Christ is will not be in heaven? And Jerry Falwell is going, well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, you know, Poor Michael Savage, he's just going Luke, you know, and obviously he had respect for him, but, you know, he said, well, even though we disagree, you know, we're going to cut it short or whatever. But I'm thinking, I was amazed how the gospel got out there. But you know what? I bet you that message was very offensive to so many people. How dare those Christians say that they're the only, the only way 
Well, we didn't draw this plan up, beloved. God did. And I think that very clearly, even when Jesus was on earth, he said, you know what? There's, there's a narrow path and there's a broad path. And it's, unfortunately, it's not the broad path that leads to heaven. It's the narrow path. And few, few, he said, are those. They go down that way. They just are. Now, we'd like to believe in our mind that, boy, everybody's going to be saved and now it's just going to be a big hoopla in heaven. Um, but you know what? The sad fact and the reality is that the majority of people will not be saved. And I don't know what that does for you, but knowing that I'm one of the few that my faith is given to me by Christ and I've been saved by His grace, that makes it even more special. Because there's nothing in and of myself that God could look down, should look down and say, oh, you know what, I want to save that person. We all have issues. But God, in His sovereign grace, dispensed His love to me and to you. You know, the, the love of God is, is similar to the love a mother has for her children. It really is. Danny said this morning, I think he said this morning when we were praying, that it's, that it's an unconditional love. In other words, you can never change that relationship. I mean, the relationship itself might be bad or good. That's irrelevant. But you know what? That mother is always going to be your mother. Always. You know, you can divorce your parents or whatever, but I mean, DNA, hey, you're, you're, you're hooked. You know, you're connected. And you know, that's the way it is with God. When God saves us and He adopts us into His family, He's got us. We're connected. There's an unconditional love there. It's not a love of performance. It's not a love of how much you do or what, how much you give or how holy you are. Because in His eyes, you're as holy as His Son. That's what He says. He's declared us righteous. So when Paul writes this and he begins with grace to you and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he knew exactly what he was writing. And we should be thankful every day for the grace of God in our life. You know, I was laying down there Friday night out on the deck. I like to sleep out on the deck on this beach house. It was a little hard, but uh, deck. But, um, you know, you hear the waves all night long. And, you know, I went out there probably about 11 o'clock, laid down, fell asleep almost immediately. And I remember waking up at like 1 a.m. And you're looking up and you see oodles of stars, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm kind of tracking some satellites go by. You know, you see them kind of moving, weird things like that. And you saw a couple of shooting stars. But, you know, and I'm sitting there laying there and I couldn't go back to sleep. And I begin to think, wow, you know what? That, that wave, you hear it crash. And I'm thinking how weird it would be if all of a sudden... It was just silent. There was no more waves crashing. Wouldn't that be weird if you're at the office all of a sudden it's just, just totally silent? And I was laying there and I thought, nope, it's going to come. Here it comes. And it just kept on that roar. It just continued. And I'm thinking, you know what? That's a picture of God's grace to us. It just continues. Continues. Doesn't stop. Ever. What a wonderful, what a wonderful thing to be a Christian, to be a believer to know you're on your way to heaven, that your sins have been forgiven. What a blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank You 
for this morning. Lord, we ask that You would just uh, continue to lead and guide us. Lord, we pray that You would uh, minister to us through Your Word. Lord, I pray for this afternoon as we spend time with family and friends, Lord, that we would continue that ministry. Lord, we do thank You for the constant love that comes from Your hand. It's so much like the love of a mother to her child. And Lord, we we praise You for that. Lord, we thank You for Your grace. And Lord, I pray that that would motivate us not to go out and just take advantage of it. We wouldn't want to do that. But Lord, that we would strive to live the life that You've called us to. That we would endeavor to reach out to a lost and dying world with the only message of hope, the only message that has any ability to save them. And that's the message of the Gospel. I pray that we would model it in our lives. I pray that we would speak it from our lips. I pray that You would use us. Lord, Bless our day today. We thank you and we praise you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.